If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ricky, I am production lead at the IAI. And I'm Charlie, and I'm senior producer at the IAI. Today, we've got Finding Transcendence in a Secular World, a talk by Rupert Sheldrake, recorded at the Hallow Light Gets In Festival 2022, the philosophy festival that we produce here at the IAI. In this fascinating talk, Rupert Sheldrake explores the nature of mystical and transcendent experience, but also explores whether such experiences overturn a materialist and secular worldview of our age. Do they overturn that, Charlie? Um, to an extent. I think what's impressive about him is whether he's in a debate or delivering a talk, he's perhaps one of the most articulate defenders of the spiritual worldview, and I think he's worth listening just as a result of that. Remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now, it's time to welcome Rupert Sheldrake to Philosophy for Our Times. Finding Transcendence in a Secular World Now, the secular worldview is not just a worldview in which governments and institutions are neutral about matters of religion and personal beliefs, but is often um, a worldview in which the materialist uh, philosophy predominates. And that philosophy says the world is made of matter, matter is purposeless and unconscious, the whole universe is unconscious. Consciousness has emerged for unknown reasons in a tiny, tiny part of the universe, namely human brains and possibly the brains of animals, other animals as well. But there's no such thing as God or consciousness or spirit out there. And if people have experiences that suggest there is, then basically it's all inside their head, caused by neurotransmitters or short circuits or something inside the brain. So that's the secular worldview as commonly understood. Well, although we live in this secular world with this very secular worldview, Lots of people have spiritual experiences, even if they're not religious. And in the 1970s, Sir Alistair Hardy, who was professor of zoology at Oxford, um, decided to look into the natural history of spiritual experiences. He thought if people are having these experiences, which they are, then maybe you could classify them and study them and look at the natural history. So he appealed for people to write in uh, with their stories and built up a large database uh, classifying these spiritual experiences. It turned out they were far more common than he anticipated. 
And more recent surveys have shown that in some cases up to 50% of the population have had experiences of feeling themselves part of a greater mind or consciousness or in the presence of a loving consciousness far greater than themselves. They use different words to describe it, but basically mystical experiences. Sometimes these happen in childhood. In fact, they quite often do, um, often in nature, sometimes through rituals, sometimes in sacred buildings, sometimes through art or music, sometimes through psychedelics. And so these experiences are very common. Also, since the 1970s, there's been a lot of study of near-death experiences, which are not experiences people try and have. I mean, most, most people don't try to get into a near-death state. It happens spontaneously through accidents, heart attacks, and so on. Um, and many people who have uh, these uh, near-death experiences find themselves going into a state through a kind of floating out of their body, going through a kind of tunnel, entering a realm of bliss, joy, peace, and love. Then, of course, they have to come back. They often don't want to, um, <laughs> but it's only a near-death experience. So um, these have now been studied in considerable detail in the field of consciousness studies or transpersonal psychology. People have also studied out-of-the-body experiences, which occur to some people where they find themselves able to travel out of their bodies. We all do that in our dreams, or at least seemingly. Uh, we travel in another body in our dreams, we have a dream body. In my dreams, I can walk around and talk to people where well, my actual physical body is lying asleep in bed. And I'm sure that's true of you as well. And I think the out-of-the-body experience and the dream body and the um, after-near-death experience body are basically the same. I think we, it's not a great mystery that we have another body because we experience it every single night. Well, there's also many spiritual practices which can make these experiences more likely. They don't guarantee them. Uh, but this is the subject of my two most recent books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. And these spiritual practices have now been studied scientifically. You can st study what happens when people do these practices. You can measure what happens. They have measurable effects. And there have now been thousands of studies of spiritual and religious practices and basically the overall message from all these studies is that people who do these practices regularly uh, are happier, healthier and live longer than those that don't. Presumably the opposite is also true. Those who don't have these practices are unhappier, unhealthier and live shorter than those that do. Uh, which is why I think militant atheism should come with a health warning. I'm just going to outline a few of them and then I'll get on to my main theme, which is pilgrimage and holy places. Meditation is widely practiced by lots of people. And there have now been studies on meditation that show changes in the brain, a reduction in the activity of the default mode network, those regions of the brain concerned with rumination, anxious thinking, worrying and so forth lowering of blood pressure, reduction of stress, making people less prone to depression, which is why in some parts of Britain, on the National Health Service, psychiatrists can give prescriptions for meditation to people who are depressed, uh, because it turns out that it's cheaper and as effective, if not more effective, than antidepressant drugs. So here's a spiritual practice that can induce a feeling, not all the time, most of the time thoughts keep going on in one, detaches oneself a bit from the thoughts and they still carry on, but there are moments of calm unity and a kind of a more unitive state 
of being or presence, which can lead to um, spiritual experiences, this experience of connection with something greater than ourselves. There have been many studies of the practice of gratitude. Um, this is found in all religious traditions, giving thanks uh, for what we have. And there are now many studies that show that people who are grateful are usually healthier, uh, happier, and more popular than those who are ungrateful. People who are ungrateful um, and who complain a lot, uh, you know, who see the glass as half empty, uh, not surprisingly less fun to be with than people who see the glass as half full and, and uh, lead a more grateful kind of life. And the critics of this research, which was done by positive psychologists, psychologists who study what makes us happy, as opposed, it's a new field of psychology, relatively new, because most psychology is about what makes us miserable. Um, and in positive psychology um, has shown that uh, when they showed this, people said, well, of course these people are great. They're, they're, they're grateful because they're happy, uh, not happy because they're grateful. So they did experiments where people do gratefulness exercises. Um, and those randomized samples of people do gratefulness exercises compared with writing a list of complaints or just a short story about something that happened in the previous week. Those who count their blessings are measurably happier for days afterwards. And uh, other gratefulness ex exercises show conclusively that being grateful uh, on the whole makes people happier. And I think that's because being grateful uh, recognizes that what we have, so, so much of what we have comes to us from others, our food, the natural world, the language we have, our culture. We didn't invent English language or, or, or the, the landscape or anything. All these things are gifts. And if we're grateful for them, this flow that comes to us can go through us and is part of a, a flow which, again, is a spirit of connection. Singing and chanting are part of all spiritual traditions. And when people sing and chant together, um, they're literally breathing together and resonating together. And now physiological studies have shown that not only do they breathe together, when you're, for example, singing a hymn, at the end of each line you have to take a breath, so everyone's breathing together and singing together. It can also lead to heartbeats being more synchronized. People come much more into a group cohesion. And I've seen this many times through the work of my wife, Jill Purse, who's here, who's for many years been leading workshops called Inner Sound and Voice Workshops. And groups of people come together in her workshops. They all come from all over the place, disparate groups of people. And after two or three days of singing and chanting together, uh, they, they leave bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, uh, you know, bonded and connected. And it's a wonderful transformation. And this, again, is present in all traditions as a way of unifying groups, bringing groups together, bonding people with each other. Again, connection. Many of these spiritual practices are about connection. And connection is what makes us feel happy on the whole, whereas disconnection, separation, alienation, is what makes people feel miserable on the whole. So singing and chanting, and, uh, you know, they have physiological effects, lower cortisol levels, stress hormone levels, and so on. And there are some people, including actually Charles Darwin, uh, who've suggested that humans sang together before they spoke, that sp singing comes before speaking. And actually that's now borne out by modern evolutionary biology theories, and I, I think it's the most plausible explanation. Uh, early human groups achieved a kind of coherence and synchronization through singing and dancing, and speaking 
was a kind of spin-off from the singing. Uh, singing came first. Fasting is another spiritual practice I discuss in my book, Ways to Go Beyond. Um, all traditions have it, and, and it uh, brings about measurable physiological changes. I myself fast during Holy Week before Easter every year for uh, four days or, more or so, just water and tea. And what that does is causes the, the body to burn up the available sugar supplies in the liver, the, the, the stores of carbohydrate are exhausted within about 12 hours. And then you're burning up fats. You go into ketosis. And one of the ketones in the blood is uh, beta-hydroxybutyric acid, uh, which is very closely related to gamma-hydroxybutyric acid, a neurotransmitter which is in the brain, and gamma-aminobutyric acid, which is a neurotransmitter. And the, 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 it change, alters the state of mind. So fasting is, is psychoactive. Um, it also removes senescent cells from the body that cause inflammation. It's very good for physical health for most people. Not advisable for anorexics, advanced diabetics, and so on. But for many people, it's the cheapest and simplest way of improving physical health, as well as spiritual and mental health. Of course, that is not something much most people do research on. There's nothing in, in this for food companies or for drug companies, and so it tends to be neglected. But if I ran the NHS, I'd roll out fasting counselors and promote fasting for many people in the population, but the cheapest and simplest intervention to improve national health. And it'll, because it leads to a greater clarity of mind, it helps for prayer and meditation, and people often have more vivid dreams. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. There are many other spiritual practices, including collective celebrations through festivals. And again, festivals in all cultures um, have a way of bringing people together, that sense of bonding and community. I lived seven years in India, and I was very impressed by the way in which they really take their festivals seriously there, and everyone's involved, the children, the whole community. Um, and it's a way in which people gain identity, cohesion, and connection with the community. And then there are a range of other spiritual practices. Um, I'll just mention one because it's uh, one more because it's slightly surprising, namely sports. I think that sports are one of the most common and yet least appreciated spiritual practices in our culture. And the reason people, I think, are so fond of sports, apart from just feeling fit and the excitement of competitive games and so on, is because they bring people into the present. I first realized this when talking to a friend in America who had a very busy life and told me that his mind was racing all the time, he couldn't sleep at night, he'd tried meditation, it didn't work for him. But he was a rock climber. He said by the time he was 50 feet up a rock face, the only thing that mattered was where the next toe holds and finger holds were, and he was completely in the present. 
if you're in the middle of a football game and people are cheering on and the ball's being passed to you and stuff, you have to be completely present. You can't be worrying about what you didn't do yesterday or what you might do tomorrow. Uh, meditation is about coming into the present, but sports bring people into the present, even as spectators, much more effectively and quickly, I think. And I think it's one reason so many people do them, and one reason by many, why many people actually have spiritual experiences, this sense of presence and connection through sports. What I mainly want to focus on, though, is uh, the spiritual practice of pilgrimage, which is present in all cultures. We find it in India, in, uh, in Buddhist countries, people go to places where the Buddha was born or was enlightened, mainly in India. Um, we find it in Islam with pilgrimages to um, the uh, Mecca and to other holy places. And of course, in the Christian tradition, medieval Europe was crisscrossed with pilgrimage routes. Here in England, the most famous was the pilgrimage to Canterbury, to the shrine of Thomas Becket. And I think that pilgrimage fulfills a very deep archetypal human need. Our ancestors were all hunter-gatherers. They moved around the landscape. On their journey, the Australian Aborigines call these song lines. They tell the story, they sing the story of the key places they visited on the journey. And if you're hunter-gatherers, you have to move around because animals and plants don't just come to you. Fruit doesn't just drop into your lap. And the animals you eat don't just come and meekly offer themselves up to be sacrificed. Um, you have to move around with the seasons. And so this moving and uh, reaching significant places is fundamental to our whole ancestral history. And I think when a Neolithic uh, revolution occurred, when people settled down and began agriculture, uh, they still had holy places they went to, especially for special seasonal festivals, Stonehenge being one example. It was not in the middle of a city, um, but people converged on Stonehenge for these festivals. A little bit like today, people converge on Glastonbury for the Glastonbury Festival. I think in a sense these summer music festivals have reinvented some of these ancient festivals. Well, in England there were many shrines. One of them was the Shrine of our, the Black Madonna in Walsingham, the Shrine of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, but at the Protestant Reformation, um, pilgrimage in England was suppressed. In 1538, Thomas Cromwell issued an injunction against pilgrimage, made it illegal to go on pilgrimage. The shrines were desecrated. The monasteries that provided the infrastructure for pilgrims where they could sleep and get fed uh, were destroyed. Um, the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham was destroyed. The image of Our Lady was burned in a public bonfire. And one reason they were so against the cult of Our Lady was because they said that uh, treating uh, St. Mary as the mother of God uh, was basically uh, a resurgence of ancient goddess cults, and this was basically pagan. Well, I think that's the great strength of the cult of the Blessed Virgin Mary, precisely that it is um, uh, inherits many of these goddess elements. Anyway, they didn't like it, and they suppressed pilgrimage in England, which left a great void in the soul of the English. Um, it was suppressed in Wales and Scotland as well, and in other Protestant countries. It left a great void, and I think that's why the English invented tourism. Um, tourism <laughs> is best seen as a form of secularized pilgrimage. Um, tourists still go to the great holy places, the cathedrals, the temples, and so forth, but being tourists, they have to pretend that they're enlightenment, modern, secular people, and they're basically going out of a deep interest in art history, uh, rather than going there uh, to light a candle or say a prayer or 
or in, uh, uh, address the god or the goddess or the spirit of the place. And in fact, it's very unsatisfying. All they can do is take photos. Um, so I think it actually is best seen as frustrated pilgrimage. Um, and I think one of the paradigm shifts that's going on today is the shift from tourism to pilgrimage, going back to pilgrimage. There's an enormous revival of pilgrimage going on in Europe at the moment. The most famous iconic pilgrimage place is Santiago de Compostela in Spain, and some of you may have been there. Um, in 1987, when the route was newly opened up and they got the infrastructure in place, about 1,000 people walked there. In 2019, it was 330,000 people that walked to Santiago de Compostela. And as a result of that, all over Europe, there's been a revival of pilgrimage. Here in Britain, there's an organization called the British Pilgrimage Trust, uh, which is reopening the ancient footpath pilgrimage routes to Canterbury and to other ancient holy places. Um, in the last two years, they've opened uh, short one-day pilgrimage routes, five or six miles, to all 42 of the cathedrals in England. There's a major route being developed at the moment from Ireland, walking through Ireland, getting the ferry across to Wales, and then to the great, the most important cathedral in Wales, St. David's. It goes to St. David's Cathedral. There are a number of other pilgrimage routes being developed and opened up here in Britain at the moment. And uh, if you're interested in this, I'd strongly recommend going to the website britishpilgrimage.org, where you can find uh, details of these routes. Now, holy places can be many and varied. In Britain, because of our history, they're mainly cathedrals and churches. There are also holy wells, sacred trees, mountain tops, sources of rivers. And these pilgrimage routes include all those kinds of holy places. And holy places all over the world have been seen as joining points between heaven and earth. And they're typically associated with vertical structures. There are some like caves, which are not where you're going into the bowels of the earth, but many of them with standing stones, with obelisks, with towers and spires, are um, uh, structures where the symbolically the structure points up into the heaven and links the heaven and the earth. But it's more than just symbolic, because these vertical structures actually attract lightning. Lightning doesn't just strike at random, it strikes at the highest places. And when you put metal lightning conductors on them, they become even more attractive to lightning. So basically, our holy places like towers, church towers and spires, and prominent standing stones, and other holy places actually funnel lightning into the ground in that place. They collect it from quite a wide radius and channel it into the ground in that holy place. So they are literally places where the energy of the heavens, which comes from the solar wind through the ionosphere, down through sprites to the clouds and then into the ground, is coming into the earth. No one in Britain seems to know how often these buildings are, are struck. But I've discovered in France there's a company that makes lightning strike counters, which you clip on the lightning conductor, you bolt them on, um, and they're electromechanical, very satisfying. They don't require batteries, because when you have a million volts going down the lightning <laughs> conductor, uh, you can use the free power uh, uh, that makes these things work. And every time a lightning strike goes down the conductor, a mechanical digital thing moves over one click. And so it would say five, and there's a lightning strike, then it'll say six. So you can monitor uh, when they occur. And actually in France, I discovered, uh, by law, 
all churches, cathedrals, and other tall structures have to make an annual report of how many lightning strikes they've had. There's somewhere in France, there's a database with this amazing information. And as far as I know, no one's looked at it or analyzed it, but it would be very fascinating to do that. I've imported some of these lightning strike counters, and several are going to be fitted on parish churches in the next few weeks um, as a pilot scheme. And um, I'm already in discussion with the Association of English Cathedrals to see if we can have them fitted on all our cathedrals. The average cathedral has about five lightning conductors from the various towers and so on. And um, um, uh, that could be monitored. It all could all be online, you know, whenever they're struck by lightning. I think it would be really interesting. Holy places, they have this literal quality um, of connecting heaven and earth. I myself find that it's very helpful to relate to them. Whenever I go to a new town or a city um, when I'm traveling, um, I try and go first to the church, the cathedral, the temple, or the holy place, the mosque, or whatever the holy place is, depending on the country and the culture, and connect with it. It's easiest in, in, in I'm a practicing Christian, an Anglican, so it's easiest for me with churches and cathedrals because I can light a candle and say a prayer there. But in Hindu temples in India, I do a puja, and uh, mosques are slightly harder, but you can always pray in a mosque. Holy tree, I love holy trees and, and sacred wells and caves. So there are all these holy places, and I find it very helpful to turn even normal journeys into a kind of pilgrimage by connecting with the holy place first. And then that, I find it just connects me with the place, the energy of the place, and I ask for blessings on my stay and all the people that uh, I'm going to meet when I'm there. Um, I find it very helpful to do that. I also um, love going on pilgrimages here in Britain and elsewhere, and I do at least one a year. I have a teenage godson. Every year we walk to a different cathedral, five or six miles, uh, through the countryside on footpaths. And when we get there, we light candles at the shrine. Pilgrimage is like, well, it's like a walk, obviously, but uh, you go with an intention, and it could be to give thanks for something, to ask for something, uh, to, to ask for guidance, for example. Um, that's what makes it different from just a walk. So we light candles at the shrine, um, have a cream tea, go to Choral Evensong, this beautiful choral service that happens in all our English cathedrals every day, um, and then um, uh, then go home. So I'd suggest if, if you haven't done this kind of thing already, you, you check it out, uh, because uh, entering these places, particularly our cathedrals, which are designed to alter consciousness, uh, they're designed to open our minds to a wider reality. The stained glass windows have a kind of psychedelic effect. They're actually designed, unlike banks, schools, offices, and so on, they're designed to change our state of consciousness. There's a small underground movement called Cathedrals on Cannabis, um, uh, which uh, uh, is obviously practiced, uh, at least uh, quietly and discreetly, um, because it's illegal. But um, the, um, going to cathedrals in an altered state of consciousness can enhance the, what they're designed to do. Of course, there are also small, small movements like cathedrals on mushrooms and cathedrals on acid. Um, and um, I think these enable people to appreciate them even more. So there are many possibilities. If you haven't explored these things, or even if you have, there's a huge scope for exploration of this kind right here in Britain without getting on planes and without 
causing huge carbon footprints. So I think that there's uh, many ways in which in the secular world we can rediscover and reconnect uh, with the realm of the spirit, far more ways than one would normally assume. Um, and I myself find through doing this that my life is enriched, happier, and hopefully healthier. Um, and I'm sure that this is something that would appeal to many, many different people. Even though it's nowhere in the educational system, it's nowhere mentioned in the mainstream media, or hardly at all. Um, but I think these are one of the most important aspects of the transformation, the cultural transformation we're going through at the moment. And I think this transformation will continue. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds of more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>